Hello, and welcome to the Recovery Matters Podcast from CCAR, the podcast where putting recovery first is always the goal. Here we present interviews, discussions, stories, and speeches to cultivate the understanding and acceptance of the power, hope, and healing of recovery from alcohol and other addictions. Here are your hosts, Phil and Sandy Valentine. You ready? I was born ready, Phil Valentine. Well, you must be ready because very recently you had quite the anniversary. Oh, Oh, that's nice of you to think of. Why? What did you think I was going to do? I don't know, but I thought I was going to be embarrassed. (laughs) Well, 31 years of recovery is nothing to be embarrassed about. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So how'd you do it? Nothing past (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. How'd you do it? One day at a time. Okay. That works. Yeah. Living with a master recovery coach is helpful no, too sometimes. No, you can sometimes. just call me author. Oh, yes. Author. Now that you wrote a book. A-U-T-H-O-R, author. I'm pretty Phillip. impressed that uh, Philip you, you held off on sharing that to the second podcast after the book became published. Oh, I don't know why, because you wanted to call me a master. Oh. So I don't, I would rather be an author. Okay. Mm-hmm. I wonder if our guest has ever written a book. Jordan, have you ever written a book? I have not written a book. Oh, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know we started there. Uh, well, <laughs> I don't know that we have either, but we're just going to keep going. Uh, my name's Jordan Goldberg. I'm a person in recovery. Um, I don't have 31 years, which is absolutely uh, amazing to hear. I just celebrated four years uh, back in July. Um from opiate use disorder, among anything else, but mainly opiates. Um, and now I'm a recovery coach professional and recovery support specialist um, for community health resources. And I primarily work in our Pathways program, which is an opiate treatment program. Oh, cool. So medicated-assisted treatment, um, mainly methadone, but also do Suboxone and, and uh, just actually work with everyone there. So all kinds of people in their recovery journey, and I'm privileged to do so every day. Yeah, congratulations. That's such, uh, so rewarding to hear. Yeah, and honestly, four years, I, it's not like 31 is easy, but those first five years were really meaningful. I'll just word it that way. So congratulations. Yeah. We are recording an episode of the Recovery Matters podcast, and I want to ask you, what matter, what subject matter about recovery would you like to address first and foremost? Jeez. So I think <laughs> because I have very strong opinions about it, and, and it's kind of my my niche in this is uh, medication-assisted treatment and recovery and kind of... Just... Well, if you're on medication, you're not really in recovery. Would you rather me take a medication or out on Broad Street trying to get something every day and being a scorn to society and myself and not living? Doesn't matter to me. Exactly. <laughs> I'm just you know he's role playing with you. He's he's I, taken enough training with me to know when I'm messing around. Yeah. He's, um, but I think what you said, you're saying it jokingly, and I yeah. know you know we've had this conversation before. You know, not in the podcast briefly. Um, the but some people do feel truly the way you just said in mm-hmm. recovery. Um, and I think they forget that their recovery is theirs and someone else's is theirs. Mm-hmm. And what 
I just said about medication I may take or that someone else takes keeps my recovery going, right? Yeah. Instead of all the bad things that I was doing uh, previously through my 15, 16 years of opioid use disorder and active addiction, um, I'm gainfully employed. I'm back in college. I actually just, I didn't write a book, but I co-wrote mm. and authored a peer-reviewed um, empirical journal article about harm reduction in um, opioid treatment programs because we are the first that we know of in the country that actually does it inside the program. Yeah. So not community-based, not a van. We do it in my office, um, meal exchange, all that from... Connecticut Coalition of Harm Reduction. So. You like get a little, detected uh, a little tone when you said not a van and things like that. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, all those things we do uh, to help people have a healthier, healthier, safer life. That's mm -hmm. recovery, right? It's not your definition, my definition. All right. Theirs. So you got a couple hot button, hot topics, right? And um, let's... Let's talk about the first one, harm reduction. And I'm very curious to hear your definition of harm reduction. Yeah, I think it's, I, it's what, I, what I think of it as is a safer, healthier life um, where you still have the opportunity to find sobriety, right? Sobriety is the goal. I wish I could put sobriety on everyone. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, let's keep you safe and alive. Yeah. That's the, do most harm reductionists, in your opinion, or in what you've experienced, share that same view as far as the definition goes? So I think people have different uh, definitions depending on their perspective, right? So uh, mm -hmm. doctors tend to have a little different of a, of an opinion based more on like infectious disease and, oh, yeah. and uh, overdoses. And mm -hmm. of course, that's something I worry about too. But from, from my perspective... Um, what I tell everyone I work with in our harm reduction services, my goal is that they never, ever have to share equipment or use reuse equipment, right? And mm -hmm. that's success for me uh, because of all the harms that can come from just reusing once, right? And not everyone's in the same place I am yeah. or I was. Um, so it is the definition of meeting someone where they're at. Is it as simple as a process that reduces harm? I mean, is that too simple? Yeah, no, I mean... Uh, and do you like that term? Yeah, I think... So what I've learned over the past couple of years, um, it's used a lot of places in medicine, right? So mm -hmm. they use harm reduction when you're talking about diabetes or, or talking about... Cholesterol medication. Or right, all those things, yeah. right? Or mm -hmm. you try to educate someone that if they're going to eat fast food to eat the healthier option, right? That's harm reduction. So I'm trying to... Everyone that I work with, we're trying to get people to take the safer route, right? If someone and they're starting conversations, the bigger mm -hmm. thing about that meeting someone where they're at, there is no bigger of a definition of that than someone is exchanging needles with me. That is being them where they're at, right? Yeah. Um, but I am very proud to say that the Narcan I've provided has saved at least six lives, um, had over a dozen people go to treatment. Mm -hmm. And we haven't had anyone since we started the program um, contract hepatitis C or HIV. That's so that's, cool. yeah, that's a win for me. So, uh, so, no, I'm getting to you because you also work in a university setting. Mm -hmm. How do you define the term harm reduction? 
So I was, that's what I wanted to share was I actually buy in completely to TJ Aikens, who's a CGAR staff member, to his quote that he shared about harm reduction. And that's, you can't get into recovery if you don't have a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, not in the most extreme end, there are folks who approach from a moderation perspective or one set of substances and not another. But I think that um, for me, making really big decisions, especially for the young people that I work with, making lifelong decisions of abstinence, um, it's really hard to make a big decision like that. So how can we get you to a place of of getting more clear-headed so that you're making choices for your life and that the substance isn't making the choices for you. Mm. I had heard that, that definition of TJ, so I like that a lot, mm -hmm. right? And I, I'm gonna steal that from him, so sorry, TJ. Mm -hmm. but, uh, oh, he'd be honored. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think too, like you said, there are different ends of the spectrum completely, right? So Canada uh, has a very, uh, radical uh, approach to harm reduction mm -hmm. right in certain places talk um, about that yeah so in canada uh, in british columbia there's a place called in uh on yeah, go on site and insight right so it's a safe uh injection site right. right it's not safer it's safe they have had over five million injections and no one has passed away upstairs they have detox and they will link you to inpatient treatment if needed right mm -hmm. They are looking at um, having so, safe supply. Which if is, somebody hasn't heard of a safe injection site, just describe that yeah. briefly. Um, so you would go in there and you would buy wherever you're going to buy from whoever you get from. Um, it's kind of set up um, more or less if you would think about like a uh, tanning salon, right? You have your own little private area with a mirror and there's mm -hmm. lots of cameras. Um, and there are nurses and trained professionals there that have Narcan and safe supplies and they monitor you, they leave you alone, like they leave you to your privacy, but they'll check on you every few minutes. Um, and if required, they'll administer Narcan. Um, the really cool thing that gets lost in all that is the part that they have people in recovery working there that mm -hmm. have had some sobriety and they will link them to either an inpatient or they have a detox program upstairs with medical staff, right? So I think that part gets lost in the headlines, right? That it's, um, there are other services, right? And they're now looking at um, even a safe supply with the fentanyl overdoses we're having. Um, mm -hmm. People don't know what they're getting, right? It's Russian right. roulette every every time, right? I think I sound like the old man on the porch. I always tell everyone this, that in my day, uh, tolerance had a lot to do with overdoses, right? Um, people had one, myself included, because you were like, oh, I could do one more of something uh, today than yesterday, and it doesn't work out well. <laughs> Now you have no idea what you're buying, right? Mm -hmm. um, so the idea of giving things that are medical grade and you know exactly what it is to people that are choosing um, to still use is the next evolution. Um, I actually just went to a little training on what they're doing in Canada virtually and it's, it is radical, right? It is the other end of the pendulum that it's swinging to. Um, people are gonna do what they're gonna do anyway so let's keep them safe, keep them alive so they can have that choice, you know. Um, Are you, would you like to see that in Connecticut? Safe injection site? Safe injection, absolutely. Yeah. Because it's happening anyway. Okay. Um, the safe supply, I learned about it about a month ago and I've wrestled with it ever since in my mind. Okay. 
you know, because I think I'd be wrestling for a while. I used to when I was in active addiction, I would think all the time, I wish I could just drive to CVS and get something. And for that to actually become a reality, I don't know if it's uh, a step too far where we're almost at enabling. Almost. Um, What do you feel about marijuana? Smoke all you want. (laughs) It's your recovery. But it's also a safe supply, though, now, too, right? Right. Yes, there is. Right. Because we had a safe supply of alcohol. Right. Uh, So we had gotten a bulletin at work um, in January, I believe, from the coroner's office saying that, you know, the marijuana supply had been contaminated uh, from fentanyl. It, It turned out not to be true. Mm -hmm. Um, there were other circumstances with it, but, um, it could happen, right? Sure. Uh, illicit dealers are not the cleanliest people. Uh, You're not going to clean your scale off in between things, right? Like, Mm -hmm. um, it can happen. If someone doesn't have an opiate tolerance, uh, it could be fatal. Mm -hmm. Um, so the idea that it's coming from a safe place, people are going to do what they're going to do anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think the biggest point of all this and, and, is it's your it's your life it's your recovery it's it's not mine right yeah. um so if it works for you if it helps you if your life is manageable manageable if it's better than it was yesterday smoke a joint doesn't bother me did you always feel this way or did working no. in the field so how did you feel prior <laughs> yeah so i like true geez uh when i first found my recovery i i've come to realize it was jealousy of not being able to use right <laughs> and the office, right, I, right yeah. I knew i want to do that <laughs> uh, right i knew i couldn't manage a job any longer i couldn't manage my finances i was three almost 32 years old living in my parents basement again like things were going south mm-hmm. and then i would see people that could drink they could use they could use coke recreationally they could use you know pills recreationally right i don't know how um I don't know how either <laughs> um i've learned and you know, I've learned how, right, is is absolutely a disease that we in recovery were inflicted, inflicted with, right? Um, so anyway, uh, two years of that in my recovery and then through working in the field, through my education, through all my trainings, through my just meeting now thousands of people, um, it's totally changed into people are going to make the choices they're going to make for their lives, Um and it's okay. Mm-hmm. It's not the my pathway is the only one, right? That's right. the biggest thing I've taken away uh, from everything the past two plus years, right? And um, the next piece of that, which we teach in the Recovery Coach Academy, and it is just because somebody chooses a pathway different than mine, um, that's not a threat to my recovery. And you wrestled with that because you're almost perceiving. A, I'm envious, and so B, maybe that makes it a threat to my recovery because I might want to go try what that person's doing. But as you get more solid in your recovery, I think the threat goes away too. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, I helped a couple get too um, inpatient, both of them. Two people that utilized the harm reduction. Every time they saw me, planted the seed, watered it Mm -hmm. a couple times a week, Mm -hmm. all that. They finally, okay, we'll go. Unbeknownst to me, he had used the restroom before I drove him um, to the inpatient facility, right? So he was a little intoxicated in my car. Uh, I just checked on him, right? Like, and so I come back. He was okay. He got where he was. He's safe. I've heard, like, he's totally fine. He's inpatient, right? So I get back, and my boss asked me, does that bother you? 
I had to, I said, no, not anymore. So I would have, but as, as I've gotten more solid in my recovery, um, it doesn't even appeal to me anymore. What a, what a great, what a great boss to ask you that question. Yeah. I'm, uh, yeah. yeah, I'm, uh, I'm very, very lucky, um, where I work, right? Like, mm-hmm. A lot of people, um, are super supportive of recovery and like, yeah, there could be pitfalls all that, whatever. Um, but yeah, very, very care, caring how I feel about things, but also, you know, the rest of my, uh, coworkers, right. There's, there's things that could be triggering for everyone just cause you're not yeah. using drugs, right. It can, this is a tough job, vicarious trauma and yeah, but, uh, that's tough. Wow. Well, so you, you're, you're like, you're like sitting on all the points, triggers, you use the word. How concerned like are you? triggers. Yeah. Well, how how concerned are you about triggers now in your your uh, recovery? Yeah. Um, not really so much. I still, so I'm Can still. Can you avoid them? No. And here's okay. my analogy, right. right? So mm-hmm. if I walk on ice skating, right? So I don't like the term slip. I don't like it. <laughs> it's a choice, right? So if I walk on an ice skating rink every day in my Jordans. Something's going to happen. Right. And yeah. if I have all the supports, if I have the people I can call, if I have all the stuff I'm doing for my recovery, mm-hmm. I can get through it, right? So um going get real personal, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad passed away last summer. The mm-hmm. thing I feared the most happened, and I got through it mm-hmm. without relapsing. How about that? Congratulations. Thank you. Like almost saying to life like bring it on like you know what i mean if i got through that the thing i feared the most for my recovery um but it also gives me the perspective of you can get through these things it's mm-hmm. not i don't even truly like the word trigger right because trigger is a gun you pull a trigger something happens right neither do i <laughs> that's why i think so many people are afraid they want to people in recovery are so fragile we're, we oh don't want God, don't we don't started. we don't want to trigger them because we're going they're going to relapse because I said the wrong thing and I triggered them. I say what a crock of crap that is. Can we Be- swear on this? Uh, yeah, you can. <laughs> is it? Can we, Melvin? Can okay, we give us a thumbs up. That is, I agree with you a hundred percent. Right? It's I'm I'm not effing broken. Oh, right. Right. Like yeah. I'm not a child. So we learn in the recovery coach academy, right? To kind of come full circle, empathy and compassion. Yeah. Not sympathy. Right. Don't feel bad for me. Don't right. feel bad for what I went through. Don't feel bad if I relapse because you know what? It's a choice. Mm-hmm. Everything I do is a choice. If I don't. So working where I where I work at at the opioid treatment program, people have to come in daily for the mm-hmm. most part at first. Sure. You choose not to come in. You're making a choice that there's going to be consequences to your medication. There's going to be consequences to your recovery. There's going to be life has consequences. Your life, right? Don't put me in bubble wrap. Don't protect me, right? And I get, uh, I work with clinicians and um, therapists, right? Mm -hmm. And so, a lot of the time, I have the harshest perspective, which is like, don't baby me, don't sympathize, Right. right? Like, have compassion and empathy. And that fine line of don't don't think I'm broken. Talk to me like I'm a person. Don't be afraid you're going to say the wrong thing because you know what? If I go relapse, I had thought about it six weeks ago, and I'm just waiting for you to say something so I can go do it. That, like, and and so I'm glad I'm not the only one that feels that way. You know, I think there's a lot of us um, because that whole trigger thing, right? You pull a trigger, something happens. Right. It's consequences to actions. It's it's a different yeah. and choices. I, I did have somebody. Um, lambaste me 
for allowing harm reduction in our collegiate recovery community. Um, really thought that I was being completely irresponsible endorsing anything except complete abstinence and honestly 12-step. Like there was no other way. But I often feel for students, and I, I always use the phrase return to use rather than relapse because each time you're not you're not going back to ground zero. Each time you are learning, right? You're mm-hmm. you're taking the power. You're making the choice to return oh, to use, nice. but you are learning. And I've I've often used Phil's story of surviving cancer. Mm-hmm. That you know they started off with a certain kind of chemo inpatient, and they moved to weekly chemo and radiation. And how many like every time the cancer reoccurs or is resisting the disease you adjust the treatment plan. And so for me, it's return to use. You're not relapsing because you're, if you take that moment and learn from it and adjust your treatment plan, adjust what wasn't working to treat your disease, and it's going to take as many modifications as it takes, right? right? Um, but I do believe, and I, you know, I, I do believe that there's a, a few of the folks in my community that wouldn't be alive without that ability to come back in the door without shame when they return to use. Yeah, and I think that's built over time and trust and the harm reduction model, right? That Mm -hmm. it's not, we're not preaching to people. We're not telling them what they have to Mm do. We're giving them options. And then you know what I found at least? So I do these needle exchanges, I do all that with people that are, you know, in pre-contemplation, right? Or they've gone back to pre-contemplation, right? And they'll come in my office. And because that trust was built over that six weeks, eight weeks of doing that, they'll go, I'm ready to go. Like, mm-hmm. call access line, do whatever right. you have to mm-hmm. do. I'm ready to go right now. And that, and I've asked people afterwards, like, no, I, yeah, I've been seeing the therapist for a year. I've been doing that. But I just didn't feel comfortable, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so there's that comfortability. And I often equate uh, addiction and recovery to cancer, right? Mm-hmm. Myself with, with folks and, and with families. It helps to, mm-hmm. you know, for the imagery of it. Um, and we're never, uh, I'm never going to be active addiction free, right? So I always have to be cognizant. I always have to do checkups. I always have to readjust that treatment plan, whatever. Um, and going back to that part, right? Our addiction's a book. My addiction's my book. Mm-hmm. So if I go back to use, I'm not starting on page zero. I'm mm-hmm. starting on page 19 instead of I ended on 20. Mm-hmm. Right. So all those lessons are still there. Yeah. The unfortunate part is it jumps past page 20 really quickly. Mm-hmm. And the, the return to uses, which I like that term, is always going to be worse than the original, mm-hmm. right? Um, well, I want to also go back a little bit to the, uh, this idea of you said that um, you know, you ha- it's up to you to manage triggers in your life, right? It's up to me to understand what the triggers are, what they do to me emotionally. And then I have a choice whether to respond to the fact if I use over it or not, right? And uh, over 34 years, I've chosen not to use over all those triggers that have come my way. What's arrogant about that is that a person thinks that if I, Jordan, if I say something to you that's so triggering, whether accidentally or on purpose, that I have the power to make you go out and use. If that was true, in the throes of your addiction, I would have the power to say the thing to get you to stop. So why are we so damn concerned about triggering people? 
Just say your what you right. Tell your truth without blame or judgment. Right. Just tell but people I think, what you fail. I think the big one is what you said that judgment piece. Yeah. Right. And people don't even realize that they have their judgment. Just right? by tiptoeing around us. Right. That they're judging us. That, that we're fragile. You know, we all have that implicit bias within us, and we don't even realize it's there. Right. <laughs> but we, as people in recovery, realize like. We, I, how am I gonna ever judge anyone, right? Mm -hmm. All the, I mean, we could sit here for 24 <laughs> hours. I tell you all the things that I'm embarrassed about that I did in my oh, yeah. active addiction, right? I can't judge anyone for what they're doing, but that's just innate, right? Mm -hmm. I, it, I could say the exact same thing as some, someone else, but it's gonna come off non judgmental mm -hmm. because I'm not afraid I'm gonna hurt your feelings. And you know what? If we disconnect because I say something that did upset you, I think it's important for anyone to just go, hey, I'm sorry. Like, right. I, or what did I do or ask, right? So, um, but like you said, say what you mean, mean what you say, mm -hmm. and you can't control how someone else is going to feel, right. right? And you can manage it afterwards for sure, um, or you can reconnect and all that. Um, we but, can only be sure of our intentions right. in any given situation. And as long as my, my intention is to do no harm, you know, that I'm trying to come out of a place of care, love, and understanding, I might be firm with you because that's my art of recovery coaching that's saying, all right, I got to be, I got to turn the, the heat up right. on you a little bit because you're not the cool, calm approach. <laughs> Let's try a little heat and see how you respond to that because that's just my art. And I might not frame it in my head that way, but I might say something that's uh, a little more aggressive and stirring your pot than at other times. Yeah, I mean, there's certain people through the past couple of years doing this that need the, you know, therapeutic voice and then, you know, encouragement um, and the calm, calm all the time. Supportive. And then there's the people that you need to be completely honest with, <laughs> say what you need to say, and sometimes sometimes they need a little kick in the butt, right? And yeah. it's worked. And so knowing, at first I was afraid to do that when I first started right. doing recovery coaching, right? Or recovery but you've been practicing that now. Right, and yeah. I have figured out my art, right? Yeah. And I often asked, I mean, by the very high ups in, in the organization I work for, like, how did you do X, Y, and Z? How did you, we've been working with this guy for 10 years and no one ever got him past contemplative. How right. did you get him to actually, I, I can't really explain it or teach it, but exactly. the practice over time and coming from the place I'm coming from, which mm -hmm. is non-judgmental mm -hmm. and caring and all that, mm -hmm. um, things tend to stick. But I also know, or I'm learning to know when it's time to do that, because it's like, almost the last tool in my toolbox, right? Because, yeah. but oh, yeah. sometimes it has to happen. Right. Um, You're not gonna hit, and, every, hit everything with a hammer. Right, right, exactly, yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, you know, I went through a little bit of a season looking for a therapist. I do not want someone to comfort me and agree with me. I, and I always used to say when we were going to church regularly, like, I like a sermon that slaps me upside the head. Mm -hmm. So I want that heat, even though I might be bawling in front of you. Right. Like, I want that. And I, I always say, uh, where I work at least, so again, working with um, you know, a bunch of therapists and clinicians and, and um the simp my my way is very different. I don't have a. They always tell me it's a therapeutic voice, mm -hmm. and it's the same with everyone, right? Sit, 
not everyone's the same. So how you use the same approach. Right. But they tend to because that's right. how they're trained and they're taught. And without that life experience you have to piece, treat everybody the same. Right. That's and, what that's the way of not showing bias or something. Right. And or, and showing um you know, making a safe environment to process your okay, but you know what? If someone's sticking a rig in their arm 10 times a day, mm -hmm. you need to take a different approach because that and if you've tried that, it's not working. It's time to have the conversation about consequences, reality, and maybe that will do it because mm -hmm. I need to go to bed at night knowing I've tried everything with someone, mm -hmm. right? Like we can't get attached to the outcomes. We don't know what's going to happen, um, but I can promise myself I've done everything I can. Right? right. And so treating everyone the same, that's not doing everything I can. No. Um, and it just sometimes, like you said, the therapy, you know, I'll be honest, I still th see a therapist now. Mm -hmm. I searched around for a little while and I found someone that was very direct and mm -hmm. helps me work through things. But at times he's like, during, you're, you're thinking like, you know, about like whatever he has to say, mm -hmm. but it's never, oh, that's okay. If everything was okay out in the real world for me, I wouldn't have. You wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be therapist. here. Right? And that's why I've always <laughs> said, right? Or so when people come into the OTP, yeah. if everything was fine outside, they wouldn't need us. Mm -hmm. right. So it's our job, if you want to call it, right, to help motivate, to help encourage, to help, help support them through the stages of change, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes that gets lost. And you can always find research that proves your point, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And so that's what people tend to fall on sometimes mm -hmm. right we can all you can read something i can read something and phil can read something uh, and it's going to be different to all of us but yeah. if it's going to back up my argument i'm going to use it I, right i'm kind of um so working in a higher education setting i'm a little relentless when i get the research how many people responded and so often they're basing hmm. something on 150 people 150 people not like 150 people in our setting but 150 people across the United States or across the world, 150 people. Okay, that is not fact. Well, right, <laughs> right. And you know, uh, and Bill, maybe correct my numbers if I'm wrong. It's uh, about 20 million people between active addiction and recovery in this country. 23.5 20, yeah. people are in recovery. Yeah, but somewhere in there, yeah. right? So that's, uh, and we're all different. We all have different experience, and different we all. Bill and I are different, different as most people will tell you, right, Melvin? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just, yeah, those, um, I think the biggest thing is, uh, you know, something I, I believe you have in all the centers. How can I help support your recovery today? Because, yeah. and the I think the key term is that today at the end, because yeah. yesterday it was different, right? right. Uh -huh. um, and it's support. I, I don't sit there and tell anyone what to do. And even if it's, sometimes you hear the worst ideas and you know this person is going to make a mistake they're going to regret and hopefully live to regret, right? Mm -hmm. But all I can do is give you the information, right? right. And then ask questions right. about it. I think exactly. more and more the, the coaching field, the recovery coaching field is really the quest for the question. What's the right question in this moment? You know, and to get people to start thinking about letting them dive inside and find the answers for themselves. Right. Because that's what I appreciate the most is people who ask me really tough questions. And I also believe the number one compliment a coach can receive is, wow, that's a good question. <laughs> I agree with you. And so, uh, again, back to my work, right? Therapists and clinicians, I tend to find out 
more accurate information, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes information that wasn't known by anyone else about someone. And that is important to share with the team because it's a clinical, it it might Mm -hmm. fit something else, right? And I've said before exactly, like, how did you find, I just asked the right question. Or you asked a question. (laughs) But it's, I'm not in this box, right? Yes, I'm almost done with uh, my bachelor's. I'm like in psychology and addiction Mm -hmm. counseling. So like they are, there is direction to them from that, from the recovery coach. It's this mix that makes my art of it. But mm-hmm. more than anything, and you taught me this very early in the RCA, I'm curious. Oh, yeah. So a lot of my questions are, I'm just curious. Yeah. And people are very interested to talk about themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, heck, that's why I'm here. I get mm-hmm. to talk about myself, right? Mm-hmm. It's great. Um, <laughs> and so when you start diving into it, like you said, our thoughts are very superficial. Right. I'm only going to think to question one. Why? What's going on? But if you're asking me 10 questions, I have to go 10 questions deeper. Mm -hmm. And so hopefully I can get someone or we all can get someone to move just a little closer to the life they want. Right. And that they deserve. We're going to fight over us. So one of the things that I think about a lot as my role as a recovery coach compared to a clinician is. I have the luxury of creating a relationship with the person I'm talking to. And I think... Without the the really thick clinical boundaries. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that makes a difference. I absolutely believe in clinical care. Um, it got me through a really difficult time more than once in my life. But I think that is what the difference is and why a lot of times recoveries are more... Um, connected with their recovery coaches because we're we're forming doesn't have to be a personal friendship but we're forming a relationship where clinicians are discouraged to do right and we have more you know the clinical piece right the insurance the you have to see x amount of people in a day we don't i don't at least at my work i I could spend four hours with someone if i want to that day because they need it i'm not saying that therapists won't do that um but they're more hesitant to do that right Mm -hmm. where if i and i've done it i've spent four or five hours with one person doing whatever they need to do that day or talk about whatever or, um, because that's what they needed that day. Mm-hmm. And so you build these meaningful relationships mm-hmm. yeah. where then I can ask difficult questions, mm-hmm. right, and live in that world a little bit easier. Um, but the therapeutic piece is very important at times, right? Mm-hmm. I will always <laughs> – I don't know how you guys feel. Uh, when we go into that world, you start talking about, like, coping skills, right? Mm-hmm. An early re- someone in early recovery, does there is no coping skill for opiate withdrawal. Mm-hmm. There is no coping skill for the depression I feel coming off of cocaine and alcohol. Right, like connection, support, and relationships are going to get you through the first two years. Mm-hmm. Then you can start working on that stuff. So when you have a death in the family, you can lean on that piece. But I don't need that intense therapy all the time mm-hmm. at parts in my life, right? So. One of the things, at least I find discouraging, is everyone at ROTP, and I believe it's nationwide, has to see a master's level therapist for their treatment plan to get their medication, to use a recovery coach, to utilize all the other resources. Not everyone needs therapy once a month. Gatekeeper. Right? One size fits all. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I, you know, it's been an intense struggle to try to get that yeah. to change. I don't know. That is one piece that. I, they're telling people 
there's multiple pathways. You have mm-hmm. to do this. And then the other hand, oh, you got to meet with your therapist once a month for 20 minutes or you can't give you your medication. But you have all these other things. But if you don't do this one thing, mm-hmm. can't utilize any of them, right? And it's theological. Right. And it, it uh, makes me want to pull my hair out a lot of days. Well, it's the payers that are driving the system. So let's let's wrap up our conversation. This might take a little while because it's what you started with, medication-assisted recovery, MAR, and there's medication-assisted treatment. What have you found is public perception overall about medication-assisted recovery? I think it's changing, right? Um, But the the perception from a lot of uh, families, people in recovery, Phil, don't yell at me, the old timers, right? Mm-hmm. I'm taking a medication. I am not in recovery because I am not sober because I'm still getting high. Mm-hmm. Nope, wrong. Like, mm-hmm. there's, it's the only, um, I will, I know in my soul, I would have never found any length of sobriety from opiates without the help of medication. So right? can I ask you what medication? Yeah, so I take Suboxone, right? Yeah. Um, it has helped me uh, tremendously. Right? So what does Suboxone do? I can function and feel normal. I know, but do you know the biological Oh, yeah. It binds, it? Oh, you want the whole thing? Well, yeah, just... Sure. Yeah, so the, I'll, I'll back up. So uh, opiates, fentanyl, heroin, whatever, is an opiate agonist, right? So yeah. it binds to the opiate receptors, then sends signals to your brain to release this enormous... I feel wonderful. Right. Serotonin, dopamine, yeah. slows down, all that Euphoria. stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, when you stop taking an opiate agonist... Go into withdrawal because your body uh, basically thinks it's dying because yeah. the brakes are on all that stuff. So it's not like we're getting little. We're getting no perceived dopamine or serotonin. So our bodies need dopamine to function, to move, to have motivation, to not be depressed, to do any human function requires dopamine. Mm-hmm. Take that away, your body goes through withdrawal, which if anyone tells me it's like the flu, we might fight. Like is, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's so beyond that, but you can't, it's, I, I've been... I've been one way or another doing this for 20 years. Right. I can't articulate what it's like. Right. Anyway, so now buprenorphine, um, which is the active ingredient in Suboxone, binds to the opiate receptors stronger than an agonist, right? So you think about like a lock and a key. It goes in the lock. It turns the key a little bit so my body doesn't realize anything is going on and I'm able to feel and function normally, right? Mm -hmm. Um, that's what, you know, the most layman terms that what, that is what it does. It lets me, my body recognize something's there. Mm-hmm. So I don't go into withdrawal and I'm able to function normally without euphoria, without high, without sedation, without any of those feelings, mm-hmm. my normal day to day can occur. Right. Um, it has allowed me to then at once I stopped, you know, shaking after about six months because there still is some discomfort. Anyone that tells you it's seamless um, and you never feel anything, I think, uh, is glamorizing it, right? You still feel some discomfort. So um, it allowed me to find the support, the connection, the relationships, do the therapy I needed to figure out mm-hmm. what piece of my life was missing that drugs filled, mm-hmm. right? We're all puzzles and mm-hmm. drugs are the last piece that some people need to feel whole. And I was mm-hmm. one of them, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've been able to do all those things, right? Mm-hmm. If I 
choose to ever come off of it. Um, or if I don't, right, I don't know. Um, but for now, I'm kind of at the, if it's not broken, don't, you know, if it's not broke, don't try to fix it. Um, so how long have you been on it now? Yeah, since day one. So we're talking four years and two months. So a lot of people, for me, the misconception is that if you're on like a Suboxone or medication-assisted recovery, you'd be kind of like, low energy, not enough, you're still high. You seem anything but that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> like, a we, I don't think anybody would have known. I certainly would have known I've been in this field for a long time, only because you told me. Yeah. And also because it's not really what medicine you're on is right. really all I mean, relevant. Certainly right? unless there's... Unless you want to talk about it. Certainly there's people that... Um, are in a place that they abuse their medications, oh, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think that's- well, you don't yeah. have to be in recovery to do right, that. Right, exactly, right. Um, so I think that's where some of the preconceived notions about it are. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, to your point, I consistently six days a week do an 18 to 19 hour day, right? Like <laughs> well, I get up and- talk about that on another- You know what I mean? I wake up at 3.30 in the morning and I have energy throughout the day. And I will tell you in those Four years and two months, I have not committed a crime. I have not stolen. I have not bought illegal drugs. I have have relationships with my family again. I have a great job that has a future in it. Like yeah. that was not happening when I was abusing prescription mm -hmm. and illicit opiates. Right. right? So um, it's not for everyone either, right? And yeah. that's the point. I just like anything else. There's pathways to it, and. Um, it works for me, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the great questions uh, one of your other recovery coaches taught me was ask someone how it's working for them. Yeah. Without judgment, without anything, just ask them. Yeah. This works for me. It right. works for a lot of people, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's the most important part of it, right? I still do other things for my recovery. Well, I, so we're on the same page. That was going to be the next piece. It's not uh, the medication is just a tool it's one piece it's one thread of your tapestry what else is in your tapestry of recovery yeah so i you know i'll go to meetings when i need to i started and by need to i mean with something if i feel like i don't have connection for that day or that week right mm -hmm. um my biggest thing that's uh for my recovery is actually doing the recovery coaching right mm -hmm. and it's just that part of giving back so volunteering on top of it um with other organizations whether it be soup kitchens right i was a chef for a long time so i'll i'll cook for you know whatever um i do therapy i you know all the different things i do i've you know my dog all the little coping skill stuff right now because i'm four years in that i found that helps me work through it but at the beginning it was gang stabilized um really intense therapy because I had been through, you know, some stuff that I had never dealt with. Um, I'm able to think about now and not think about using, where back then I thought about it, I instantly went and used, right? So yeah. um, I've put the work in with the help of the tool because the medication, a medication, especially with opiates um, or alcohol, right? Anything, um, it gave me a choice. That's yeah. all it does, right? Where that withdrawal piece takes the choice, took the choice away from me. Besides, yeah, I wanted to be high, don't get me wrong, but like right. took that piece away from me for so long, I wasn't ever able to choose to not be. Now I'm able to choose what I want my life to look like. Jordan, I feel like you just gave the best bring it to life for me explanation of all of that, that 
that I've ever heard. So <laughs> thank you for that. And I could well, really piece the part about provide it helps provide a choice like all the way from yeah. the opioid receptors oh, and how yeah, you yeah. described it. And, mm -hmm. you know, I can correlate that a little bit that, you know, I always had anxiety, but I was very high functioning in recovery. And it wasn't until um, four years ago that that anxiety tipped over and I could not keep from crying every single day for hours on end. And I waited over a year um, before deciding because of all the messages about, you know, if I go on medication, I'm not sober anymore and all that stuff. And I, I went on a um, antidepressant that I've been on now for four years or three years for anxiety. So it actually helps. But I always refer to it as like being being an egg and all those tears and emotions, anxiety were inside the raw egg and I'm cracked. And so all I feel like the medication does is keep a, a nice layer from allowing that to pop out. And I still cry. I, I cried in the last podcast. So like, right. I think <laughs> you know, it's not that I remove my emotions, but it allows me to manage them. I think we have uh, in society at least two distinctly different pre uh, conceptions of MAT or MAR. And one is either you're just on a drug mm -hmm. and it's you're still on something, you're still getting high, or the other one is it's going to fix everything. Mm -hmm. I've had too many families come into me and we talk about their son or daughter started uh, <laughs> MAT. They've been on the medication three days, four days. Why are, why are they still using? Why are they still swaying? Why are they still having these thoughts? Why are, and you have to have those conversations, right? And manage the expectations just like mm -hmm. anything else, right? right. If someone's on uh, diabetes medicine and they still are eating four Big Macs a day, guess what? You're still going to have the issues. You have to still put in the work. And I don't want that to get lost with oh, yeah. uh, the, the recovery community, right? There's still work we put in. Um, and it doesn't change anything because i'm a way better person way better than i ever was when i was using right? so my last well another kind of interesting question tough question that i've asked and heard people talk about is when they're on medication do you ever feel that i mean your life is really good now right yeah and compared to where it was it's incredible do you think your life would be even better if you are off the medication. And that's and because sometimes people think the medication gets, you know, it kind of it gives you a glass ceiling because if you're on that medication, you're never gonna get to like a stage three or four or five of recovery that we might talk about in the Recovery Coach Academy. Do you th what are your thoughts on that? No, why, right? I'm not, like, you know what I mean? Like, that question, like, that, I appreciate that, but that question doesn't even make sense to me, right? Great. Um, Great. It doesn't, I put it this way. I spent every waking and sleeping moment thinking about using mm -hmm. for 16 years. Yeah. I spend 15 minutes a month at my doctor's. Uh -huh. And 30 seconds a day taking the medicine. It does not affect my life in any way, right? It doesn't. Yeah. Um, well, it's it, it's cloaking your brain so you can't let the spiritual presence or power of God if, to get in. Well, I've heard all kinds of things in my ears. If, my, <laughs> if I could imagine my life better 
I would, but I can't. Oh, good. Right? Um, I'm as happy as I've ever been. I mean, I started using when I was 15, 16 years old, and then really heavy from uh, 17 to 32, right? Mm -hmm. So I clearly was not a happy child, right? I had a great childhood. My parents were great. Like, I had nothing to do with them, but there was something, right? Um, I I can't answer i i can't see anything better right can i have more money sure can i do all that stuff but that's not gonna change if i come off the medicine i'm not gonna get a raise at work mm-hmm. my dog's not gonna live longer i'm not gonna meet the woman of my dreams tomorrow because i come off my suboxone maybe, right good. maybe <laughs> right i won't be at the doctor's <laughs> for 15 minutes this month yeah, right like, co- coincidence um right? <laughs> and so it has nothing to do with the medicine it's everything to do with the person right right um i work as hard on my recovery as i did my active addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, how how yeah. many people feel this way? Which about, part? About the part about you're such a, like, it seems to me very practical, uh, realistic view of the medication you're on. You know, yeah. how many people feel like um, really see the benefit and the power and yeah. what it can do and if taken correctly and do all that? My experience. I'll just. I also say, and I also say that, even though we've been talking about this for twenty plus years, that the majority of people still think that being on medication is, for lack of a better word, wrong. Is that right? I mean, I think so. Or is it shifting? Is it changing? No, it's it depends, right? In my experience, it's like 50 50. I have a 50 50 shot when I talk to someone about it, right? Um, <laughs> Either they do or they don't, right? And it's it's so does it always land like 50 50? Yeah, I too? mean, there's there's um, there's no, 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 I always talk about it. I'm saying right. like there's clients that dislike they're on medication. There yeah. are clients that call it liquid handcuffs with the methadone. There are clients that, mm-hmm. uh, when they show up for their Suboxone appointment, make some comment, right? Um, in a way, I chose for 16 years. It's not the doctor's fault. It's that I have to do that. I'm choosing to do this now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think part of it is taking responsibility for my recovery, right? right. And so it's... There's some clients that praise the medications like I do that and families. Oh my God, this is, yeah, this has changed everything for me because I get to make going back to that choice, right? Mm-hmm. Um, some people, their families will come in and they're against it, right? They'll come in day week one and they'll be totally against their family member being on uh, an MAR when their family member moves into action or maintenance. They're the first people that call me and thank me, yeah, they are the first people that send those flowers and cards and whatever and oh my god i don't know where so the power of it just like the power of recovery is all in the individual but we all have the potential right and so that um the medication just helps us again it's all about choice i want choice in my life and it does that for me right um and anyone that would leads to me say oh you have to come off it like you have to you're not in recovery and i actually listen to them there's something wrong with me a (laughs) but b you want me back doing what i was doing because i didn't have a lot i didn't have a lot longer i was gonna live that way you know um and i was hurting other people and all those bad things um but even with okay you know uh the some of the potential or the problem uh the can be within 
the medical community, within the recovery community, right? So um, I had an injury last year, went to the doctor, my dog bit me, right? Um, mm -hmm. Go to the doctor, walk in, and medication list, right? And I don't care, as you say, I'll talk to whoever about this, right? Mm -hmm. So put down. Doctor walks in, first words out of her mouth. I'm not giving you pain meds. Thanks, I didn't ask for any. So there's that part I understand. People are weary of Did you say people. that? Oh, I was, it was that and a little more. Um, <laughs> Good for you. It's. Uh, that's being an advocate. Yeah, it was. roles, even if you're a little angry, a little heated. Right, yeah, I can bring, you know, bring myself back a little bit. But yeah, I was heated, right? Yeah. Like, wasn't there for that. Right. And when, if, like, even take him if you want, right? But like, it was just so. But then I went to the actual hand surgeon. He sees it on the medication list, shakes my hand, gives me a hug, says, I'm proud of you. My wife's in recovery X number of years. So that's why I mean. it's you don't know. But I have chosen to advocate mm -hmm. for it, right? right? Not everyone wants to or has to or, or whatever. But I've chosen to stand on a soapbox and take the arrows from the people that uh, want to throw them and mm -hmm. try to have a conversation, also realizing some I can't change your mind. That is irrational. But I can give you information that can maybe get you to see it a different way. Right. Move you a click one way or yeah, another. That's all. Yeah, yeah. Ultimately what someone thinks doesn't affect me. You know, life's good. Did we uh is there anything we didn't cover you'd like to add? No. We talked about a lot of things. No, we was did. Fun. Yeah. Stuff that you're uh, really passionate about. I love to see that. Yeah. This is uh See, Jordan knows me well enough that I'm just not necessarily believing. I'm just asking. You were the questions. only one that was. Um, mm -mm. <laughs> well, that's okay. This is like you know, I I'm happier now than I've ever been. But I've chosen to talk about this. Right, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. I always thought it was something else, but um, the power of recovery and the potential that everyone has. Right, the one thing I do want to say is. I'm not special, right? My mom might say I am, right? But I hope so. You know, I mean, like, but anyone has the potential to mm -hmm. do this, to be happy, to get the life they want, to not be held hostage by a, a drug or alcohol, right? Mm -hmm. um, and if they're not ready for that, that safer, healthier life. Um, so hopefully, one day they can make that decision. You know, do make that decision. Um, but I have. I have seen things that during my active addiction uh, phase before I was kind of in late into it, um, I would go, God, that person's got no, like, it's so bad, right? Mm -hmm. They've hit rock bottom, which I hate that term. Mm -hmm. um, and seeing people in their recovery, like, they found their recovery, which maybe for them meant sobriety. They got a job. They got a house. They got mm -hmm. married. They got all these things, right? And um, there's honestly, and this is just because you're saying here, the best decision I've made in a really long time was taking the RCA, because it kicked off everything, right? Mm -hmm. um, it was a foot in the door into the field I want to be in because it needs to change, and I, I want to be part of that, right? I think we need more people in recovery working in the field that will talk about it, right? Mm -hmm. um, where I am, I'm up to, you know, finishing my degree, and then this, and I have a job, and the RCP and the RSS will never come off my letterhead, no matter what other letters are there, right? I don't right. care, like... Tell you not to disclose. I'll go work somewhere else. You know, because mm -hmm. um, I think that we there's a difference between knowing and understanding, and people in recovery we understand it, mm -hmm. not just reading out of a book, right? right. Um, so Jordan, I think I think the best way to sum up our conversation is what you just said a minute ago, is that harm reduction 
really gives you the chance to someday make that choice for a happier, more beautiful life. So thank you for putting your face on recovery in that. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the Recovery Matters podcast. We hope that you have connected in some way with what you've heard. For more information, you can find us on the web at ccar.us. Like and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at CCAR, the number four, recovery. And on Instagram at Recovery Matters Podcast. And you can use the hashtag RecoveryFirst to show support for our mission. Have questions, comments, feedback? Email us at podcast at ccar.us. Fire feeds fire. So if yours is burning right now, reach out.